All right. Well, this morning we are going to study from the book of First John. So please open there with me. First John. And we're going to be in the last part of First John chapter 2. First John chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 28. And we're going to study through chapter 3, verse 10. It's kind of a whole section. So 1 John 2, 28 through 3, verse 10. And let's read it together as we begin. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he is manifested, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you recognize that everyone who does righteousness has been born of him. See how great a love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And we are. Because of this, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been manifested what we will be, We know that when he is manifested, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed upon him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who does sin also does lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested in order that he might take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Everyone who abides in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has neither seen him nor come to know him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who does sin is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. For this reason, the Son of God has been manifested, so that he might destroy the works of the devil. Everyone who has been born of God does not do sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot continue to sin because he has been born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Everyone who does not do righteousness is not of God, as well as the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the teaching of his word. Our good heavenly Father, where we believe that this is your holy and perfect word, and we believe that you have appointed this time to learn from it. Lord, thank you that when we hear from your word, we truly hear you speaking to us. Please help us to have receptive hearts and to learn what you want to teach us this morning. Help us to love you more because of this. In Christ's name, amen. Well, when I was in junior high, I never had to go to school. That's because I did all my school at home. Yeah, I was a homeschooler. Yeah. So, like a lot of you, I think... I was homeschooled, and so along with my three younger siblings, and my mom was my teacher. And that was great. I loved homeschooling. I loved to have my mom as my teacher. She taught me everything I I know from school. 
on the, and it was awesome. And she was a really good teacher. And one of the things that made her a good teacher is she was awesome at motivating us to learn and motivating us to do well in all of the things that we pursued, whether it be our schoolwork or our our sports activities or whatever we were doing, she was really great at providing good motivation. And that motivation usually came in the form of candy. She was really good at motivating us with candy. For for example, uh, for us to memorize our math times tables, whenever we correctly recited our math times tables, she would give us M&Ms. And M&Ms were the perfect thing for math because they were called math motivators, M&Ms. And so we got M&Ms whenever we correctly recited our math times tables. Um, Another thing that I remember is uh, something that's really cool that we used to do as a family is we'd all uh, sit around in the living room and memorize scripture together. And we would work on our memory verses. And my mom always had this little bowl of caramels sitting next to her on the, on the table. And so whenever one of us correctly recited a Bible verse, she would pick up one of those caramels and fling it across at us. And so we would get a little, a little reward after um, memorizing our verse correctly. And that just made scripture memory a little bit more fun. And, and of course, scripture memory is great anyway, but to have a little bit of caramel at the end is awesome too. Um, and one of my favorite things though is... She would also motivate us with candy for sports. And uh, this was one of my favorite candy bars. It was called a score bar. Have you guys, do you guys know what a score bar is? A score bar, I think I have a picture of it. Um, but a score bar is kind of like a Heath bar. You can put that up. Yeah. So it's one of these. Um, and it's like a Heath bar. It's like caramel covered in chocolate, super delicious. But this was the special motivator for our sports games because guess what? Whenever we scored a goal we would get a score bar. And so my mom motivated us with all these different kinds of candy. All right, I don't need the candy bar anymore, Andrew. Thank you. Um, But yeah, and and all of these things I want you to notice that she was motivating us to do were very good things. There were things we wanted to do already, except for maybe the math. But we wanted to memorize our scripture verses and we wanted to score goals in our sports game. Who doesn't want to score a goal in their sports game? But then to get a candy bar on top of that just makes it a little bit sweeter, literally. Um, so the reason I'm telling you all of this is because in the book of first John, in this passage that we're going to look at this morning, what John wants to do for those that are reading this passage, he wants to motivate us to do something. He wants to motivate us to abide in Christ. He wants to motivate us to abide in Christ. And why does he want to do this? Well, if if we would have looked at the previous passages in 1 John, we see that there are these false teachers that have risen up among the church that John is writing to, and they're confusing the people. They're confusing the church. They're teaching false things, and they're even leaving the church and going somewhere else. And John doesn't want the true believers. John, John shares that those who went out from them were never of them. They were never Christians at all. And John doesn't want the true believers to follow them. He doesn't want them to go after false teaching. He wants them to stay here with Christ, stay with the true church, stay with the God that you have believed at first. And that's what it means to abide, to stay, to remain. And so John wants them to abide. But he also has another thing in mind for the reason that he wants them to abide because he knows, and this is just as applicable today, that Jesus is coming back soon. Jesus is coming back soon. At any minute, we don't know when he will appear, when he will be made manifest again among us. But he will come back and he will judge the earth. And John wants the believers that he's writing to 
to have confidence that when that happens, we are going to be taken with him. And there are those who abide in Christ and who prove that they are true believers, that they have really believed the gospel, they will get taken with Christ. But there are those who do not abide with Christ, like those false teachers who got up, they believed something false, and they went out. And those people will be judged when Christ returns. They will be punished for their sin forever in hell. And so it is so important. And John is, is saying, little children, he's a good spiritual father over them. He, he brought them to the faith and he has been leading them as a good father. And he's saying, little children, abide in him. Abide in him. Don't leave what you've believed. Stay with Christ. And so he's going to give us motivations to do this for, for God's glory, because he receives glory when we stay with him. But not only that, we have great confidence and assurance when we stay with him. The whole book of 1 John, by the way, is about assurance of your salvation. He writes in 1 John 5, 13, these things I have written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants us to know that we have eternal life, but Notice as well, he says, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So in order for you to know that you have eternal life, you need first to believe in the gospel. You need to believe in the name of the Son of God, that he came down from heaven, became a man, took our sin upon himself, and died on the cross so that we could be set free from our sin. You have to believe that. And if you believe that, you can know that you have eternal life. These believers believed that. And I pray that many of you also believe that. I pray that all of you would come to believe that. And yet John is encouraging them. You have to abide in this truth. You have to abide in Christ till the end. You have to persevere in your faith. And so this is a good thing to do. And yet to make it a little bit easier for us and to really convince us that this is something that we need to do, he gives us motivations to do that. And so the big idea that I want you guys to see that we're going to study, the big idea, can you put that up for me, Andrew, is this. God's children are motivated to abide in Christ by remembering the goal of life, the love of God, and the ugliness of sin. And so these truths, the the goal of life and the love that God has for us and the ugliness, the despicableness of sin— John teaches us about these things in order to motivate us to abide in Christ. And like I mentioned, abide means to stay, to remain. It has the idea of living. You're living your life in Christ, living for him, staying with him, not being distracted or going after anything different. And so let's look at each of these motivational truths that God God is sharing with us through this passage. And so the first one, the first motivation to abide in Christ is the goal of life, the goal of life. And we're going to see that in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. But let's look at verse 28. John says in 2.28, And now, little children, abide in him. Why? So that when he is manifested, we may have confidence and not shrink back in shame at his coming. And so the goal of the Christian life as John presents it here, is to be confident and unashamed when Christ comes back to judge this world. 
And you can be sure that Christ will come back to judge this world. And that's what this verse is talking about too. We, we just see that when he is manifested and his coming, what does that mean? Well, if we look forward just a little bit to 1 John four seventeen, he mentions his coming again and he says that he's coming in judgment. And this is a truth throughout scripture. Um, Paul says in Acts 17 that God has set a day in which he is coming. He, he is sent, he's sending his son to judge the world in righteousness. Jesus is coming back soon and he will judge the world in righteousness. And I want you guys to think for just a minute. What, what are your thoughts when you realize that? If Christ was to return, to come back from heaven today, what are your thoughts? How do you think about that? Now, John's goal is that people who trust in his name would have confidence and be unashamed when he comes. But there's only two kinds of people. When he comes to judge, he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. There's no halfway Christians. There's either you're saved and you believe in Christ and you live for him, or you're unsaved. You have not truly believed in Christ. Maybe you even say you are, but if you don't follow him, and if you don't live according to his word, it shows that, you're, that you've never truly believed in him. And those people will be judged. And look, John's goal in this letter, and I, and I will tell you also that the goal of every pastor is that the people that he is teaching would be presented confident and unashamed before God on that judgment day. That's what pastors want for their people. And I'll tell you, that's what your parents want for you guys. Their goal for your life is that in the end, when Christ returns, you will be confident and unashamed before him. And that's your pastor's goal for you too. Pastor Jay would pray for you guys and and, and he wants you to be presented holy and blameless before Christ on that day, confident and no reason to be ashamed when Christ returns. And this is what this is what Paul even wanted for the people that he wrote to as well. In Philippians, he, he was looking forward to the day of Christ and was praying that you would be sincere and without fault at the day of Christ, that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and without fault on that day. And we want that if we truly understand what the Bible teaches, if we truly understand that there is a reality of heaven and hell. And John says that that comes through believing in Christ and through abiding in Christ. And so that's why it's motivation to abide in him. And as you think about Christ's coming to judge, you might realize, wow, like, and I realize I am a sinful person. I do not deserve to stand unashamed before Christ on that day. Because of my sin, because the wages of sin is death, when Christ returns, I deserve the fullness of God's wrath to be poured out on me. And I deserve eternal punishment in, heaven, in hell forever. And so how is it possible that anyone can have confidence that they would have eternal life? How is it possible that we can have this confidence and not be ashamed when he returns? Well, that is the good news of the gospel, friends. Because... The Bible clearly says that all who believe in Christ, Christ has taken that punishment upon himself. The way that you can have confidence is if you're not condemned, but justified before him. Romans 8.1 says that all who are in Christ, he, he says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you believe in Christ, there is no condemnation for you and you can be confident before him. 
And you can also be unashamed because he has borne all of your shame for you on the cross. Turn over to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, and I want you to see, this is, and as you turn there, I want you to think this is the perfect and holy son of God. The one who never sinned, no deceit was ever found in his mouth. He did not deserve to be punished. He did not deserve to die. But look at God's love and what he did here. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. And we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And he was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities and the punishment for our peace fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. That is what Christ did for all who will believe in him so that they can have no more shame upon themselves. Peter picks this up in 1 Peter 2.24, where he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness for by his scourging, we are healed. And that is how someone can stand confident and unashamed when Christ returns. That's how someone can, can be. Look, John doesn't want you to shrink back in shame when he comes. And that is what sinners deserve to do. But because Christ received all of your shame upon himself, all of the guilt of your sin, and God struck him down because he loved all who will believe in him. And he wanted to provide a way of salvation. He wanted to give a reason for confidence and to be unashamed at his coming. That is beautiful and amazing. If you believe that message and if you abide in Christ, this Savior, because he rose again and he sits now at the right hand of God, you can believe in him and have this confidence. Romans 9.33 says that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And so this is the promise of scripture. You can have this confidence, but only in Christ, never in anything that you do, never in your own righteousness, only because Christ has taken your sin and he has lived out perfect righteousness for you. You believe that, you trust in that, you can have confidence when he returns. And so this sweet confidence is a motivation to abide in him. But what does a person who has this confidence look like? What does a person who has this look like? Well, look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, talking about Jesus, you recognize that everyone who does righteousness has been born of him. The person who believes in Christ, their life is going to look like it. They are going to obey their parents. They are going to be kind to their siblings. They are going to do their chores and their homework with joy and willingness because they serve a savior who has loved them and died for them. And this, these deeds of righteousness will prove that this person has truly believed in the sacrifice that, of Christ, that they are freed from their sin. And so that's the motivation of the goal of life. And I pray that this would be your goal for your own life, that you would look forward to that day with joy because you know that Christ has atoned for your sins. 
But there's a second motivation that we see in this passage, and that motivation is the love of God. The love of God motivates us to abide in Christ. And you might notice that in verse 29 of chapter 2, John talks about everyone who does righteousness. And then if you skip down to chapter 3, verse 4, you see everyone who does sin. And so his intention is to sort of contrast these two ideas of righteousness and sin but he mentioned being born of God and he can't get past that without erupting in joyful praise to God and calling us to see how great of a reality this is. And he says, chapter three, verse one, behold how great a love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And we are. Not only that we get to be called children of God, but that we who believe in the name of Christ truly are children of God. There's a program for very terminally ill children. Uh, It's called Make-A-Wish. And what this program allows for these these kids who have a terrible disease like cancer or something, and they're, they're going to die soon, they allow these kids to make a wish and to do whatever they want for a day. And it's pretty awesome. But, uh, Sometimes they want to be uh, like a firefighter and ride in the fire truck. Sometimes they want to be a policeman. Sometimes they want to meet one of the Avengers or something. And sometimes they want to be the mayor of a city or something like that, um, which is interesting. But, th- but that has happened. And the thing is, they are called the mayor of that city for a day because they get that wish. And they get to, they get to like change some street names and stuff and, and make some rules. I don't know if the rules stay or not. But the point is, they get called the mayor of that city for a day. Now, our relationship with God is not like that. We aren't just called children of God for a short time. If we believe in Christ, we truly are children of God forever. And that's what you need to understand. If you believe in Christ, then you truly are a child of God for eternity. And that is amazing love of of the Father because we don't deserve that. And so John says, behold, look, see how great a love the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God and we are. And that is a great motivation to abide in him because we want to love and honor the Father who is changed our state, the changed the state of our relationship forever with him from judgment before him to the closest relationship that a child could have to a father. And we see under that, that I want you to see how great this is as, as he, as he changes our nature and gives us three new realities of what it means, three new realities of what it means to be a child of God. And the first one is, is that there is a new birth If you're a child of God, that means that you have been born again. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus who came to Jesus and wanted to talk about all the great signs that Jesus was doing, but Jesus knew what he really needed and said, no, what we really need to talk about is that you need to be born again. It doesn't matter how much you come to church, how many good works you do. If you have not been born of God, you are not a child of God. But those who believe in him, how do you become a child of God? Well, John says in John 1, 12 and 13, to as many as believed him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That's how you are born again. That's how you become a child of God. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
you'll become his precious child. And that means you're part of a new family and a, and a new relationship with him. And that also changes your relationship with the world, by the way. Uh, and you'll notice at the end of verse 1 that it says, because of this, the world does not know you because it did not know him. That's why it's sometimes hard to be a Christian in this world because those who do not believe, they don't like Christ and so they don't like Christians. And you will be made fun of and, and, and you will be mocked by those who don't understand who God is. But don't worry about pleasing the world because you have such a better relationship with the Father in heaven. Such a better relationship because he loves you perfectly. Think of how much your parents love you. Think of how much your dad cares for you. And our Father in heaven is so much more perfect even than that. He knows you perfectly. Even all of the struggles that you have, even all of the hardships have been perfectly appointed by your Father in heaven to grow you and to help you. Everything he does is for your good. He gives us good gifts. And that's what it means to be a child of God. But you also, it also changes your perspective on the future. You have a new hope now, a new hope. And that we see in verse two, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we will be, but we know that when he is manifested, we will be like him. And that's the hope of every believer. We are weary because of sin. But when we see Christ face to face, we will become like him. He will glorify us on that final day where we will finally obey him perfectly as we desire to if we are true Christians. And he will help us to do that. And finally, he gives us a new desire as children of God. If you're in a new family, you have a new desire to please your father. And that's one of purity. Look at verse three, that everyone who has this hope fixed on Christ purifies himself just as he is pure. You wanna be like the God who saved you. You wanna be like Christ. Christian means little Christ, someone who follows Christ, someone who looks like Christ. And if he is pure, if he is holy, if he is someone who does not sin but always practices righteousness, you want to do as much as you can to honor him and put away sin. And we'll look at that a little bit more in the next point. Because not only are we motivated by the love of God, and not only are we motivated by the goal of the Christian life, but thirdly, John gives us this motivation that is the ugliness of sin. The ugliness of sin. And this is, the first two were, were very joyful and encouraging motivations, right? That, that we get to be called children of God should fill our hearts with joy and thankfulness to our Savior and to our Father who sent his only Son to die for us. That's amazing that we get to be called children of God and we are, and that we get to have the hope of when Christ comes back in judgment, we can be confident, we can stand before him assured that we are on his side, that we are cleansed from our sin. That's amazing confidence. That's great joy. And that's an awesome motivation but then we're going to take a look now at the ugliness of sin, which is more of a negative motivation, more of a negative motivation. And what we're going to see here is in, in, in verse four, everyone who does sin also does lawlessness. What does this mean? Well, lawlessness is the opposite of righteousness. Lawlessness 
is what those do who hate God and who will be thrown into the eternal fire. Remember on that last day in Matthew 7, Jesus talks about people who will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, I did all of these things for you. I even prophesied in your name. I even cast out demons in your name. Uh, Can't you let me into heaven? But these people were hypocrites during their lives. They didn't truly believe. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, depart from me, who? You who practice lawlessness. And lawlessness deserves that kind of judgment. Lawlessness deserves to get thrown into hell forever. And lawlessness is what sin is, my friends. And John wants us to understand how serious this is, that every time we sin, every time we disobey our parents, every time we take something away from our siblings just because we wanted to have it, every time you think about yourself in a selfish and prideful way instead of glorifying the Lord who gave you everything that you have. That's sin and that's lawlessness deserving of death. And the reason John wants to enforce this is because the main thing is this, that that sin is not okay for Christians to do. It's not okay. Sin is incompatible with the Christian life. Christians should not sin because they have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. Christ has transferred them from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You've been changed from death to life. From hell all the way into heaven. And so why in the world would you participate in that which Christ hates? And as we walk through the rest of these verses, we're we're going to see why sin is so ugly. And the first reason is that is that it dishonors Christ's name. Sin dishonors Christ's name. Look at verses four and five with me. Everyone who does sin also does lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And look at why Jesus even came. And you know that he was manifested in order that he might take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So if you are associating yourself with Christ, your life should look like his. You should not want to sin because Christ didn't sin. And he came to take away sins. Why are you going to participate in what he came to undo? I think I can help you understand this a little bit with this. Um, I was telling you about how my mom would motivate us in our sports games and stuff. But one of the things that was very important that my parents always enforced is they said, hey, when you go to your sports practice and when you play in your games and whatever you do outside of this house, remember that you represent our family name and you are representing God to other people. And so when they look at how hard you work and when they look at how you respond to things and and what you say, how you talk, what you do, Those things reflect your family. And I'll tell you even more important, those things reflect your God. People should see something about who our great God is by how we live. And sin dishonors Christ's spotless, perfect name. If someone looks at a Christian and sees them sinning all the time, they're going to think, wow, that, that, uh, that salvation, that God that they serve must not be all that great because they continue to do the things that the God came to undo. If you're practicing sin, you're dishonoring Christ and saddening him because sin is blatant 
opposition to Christ and it contradicts the very purpose that he came. Let's look at verse six. Everyone who abides in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has neither seen him nor known him. And what does it mean that that everyone who has been born of God, everyone who abides in God does not sin? I'll tell you this. It doesn't mean that this person never sins, but it is setting an expectation for Christians, like I was just telling you. This This is the expectation. When you look at a Christian, you should not see a life of sin. That's what John is saying here. You should see a life of righteousness and a life that seeks to pursue the truth. Not only does sin dishonor Christ's name, but think about this. When you sin, you're fighting on the devil's team. Sin fights on the devil's team. Let's look at verse 8. Verse 8 says this, The one who does sin is of the devil. Because from the beginning, the devil has been sinning. And furthermore, for this reason, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Christ's whole purpose was to undo the works of the devil. Do you remember when Satan first tempted Adam and Eve in the garden and they did what God commanded them not to do? It was because of their own sin, but because the devil was fighting against God, wanted to steal God's glory. And so Christ and the devil are at war with each other. And whenever you sin, whenever you align yourself with the ways of the world rather than the ways of Christ, you are actually fighting on Satan's team and you're fighting against your savior. That's how serious sin is. That's what John wants us to see. That's what God wants us to see from this passage. And so don't join the ranks of the devil. And and by the way, I'll just tell you, that's the losing team. That is the losing team Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, and he will do so. When we look in Revelation, we see in the end that he will be cast along with his demons, along with all who join forces with him into the lake of eternal fire. And Christ will reign victorious. He becomes, he's victorious in the end, and no one can stand against him. And so how much sweeter would it be to abide in him and to practice righteousness and to just rejoice and rest in your savior and believe that everything that God has for you, everything that Christ has for you is so much sweeter than the sin that you would be tempted to partake in. And so remember that, remember the sweetness of Christ and salvation from your sin and all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places we see from Ephesians 1 that you have in Christ so that you do not join yourself to something so much lesser that is worthy of death. But finally, I want you to see this, that that sin is also ugly because it reveals who the devil's children are. And and that's just the nature of it. If we we see clearly in in verse 9 that God's children don't live this way. Look at verse 9 with me. Everyone who has been born of God does not do sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. And this is a great promise that God has given us. This is an amazing truth. What does it mean his seed abides in us? Well, I think his seed is referring to the word of God implanted in our hearts and empowered by the Holy Spirit to remind us and and to bring us to repentance and to not allow us to continue in sin. God gave us his spirit and his word in order that we would be able to fight sin. Psalm 119.11 says this, and you know it, I think, your 
word I have hidden in my heart. Why? That I may not sin against you. And so we have the word of God in our hearts. And that is a gift of him. That is something that he has revealed to us. And that is something that the spirit brings to our minds so that we can honor him. That's why the one who is born of God does not keep on sinning. The spirit will bring you to repentance. And that's a great gift. That's a reason to rejoice because you don't have to be despairing over your sin. You can turn back to Christ, take another look at Christ, remember the gospel. You are never more or less loved by God if you are in his family. He always loves you to the perfect extent. Even when you do fall, you can turn again and look to him and repent. And he loves you just as much. By looking at who practices sin and who practices lawlessness, final verse, verse 10, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Everyone who does not do righteousness is not of God, as well as the one who does not love his brother. And so it's easy to see if someone is a child of God or a child of the devil. Who do you look like? Children look like their fathers. They, they look like their fathers. They walk like their fathers. They live like their fathers because they want to imitate who they love. And so the children of God imitate righteousness. And that righteousness doesn't save them. It just shows that they believe that Christ is righteous and they want to live like him. People who live in sin, if you think that you're okay to keep on sinning, then you truly, the Bible is clear, people who keep practicing sin are child, children of the devil. And so abide in Christ. Trust and believe in his name for your salvation and abide in him until he comes again to, to take up his own children. We know that we are helpless on our own. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus says, you can do nothing apart from me. Unless you abide in me, you can do nothing. Isaiah 64, 6, it says, all our righteous deeds are filthy rags. So that means that we can't trust in anything of ourselves to be saved, but I want to give you great hope from the promises in scripture that everyone who believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved and will enjoy heaven forever with him. You can know that you have eternal life by believing in the sacrifice of Christ and by abiding in him until the end. And your practice of righteousness will confirm to you that you have believed. And so friends, please seek to put off sin in your life and seek to put on righteousness and live like your father in heaven and give glory to him. But the best way that you can obey Christ is to believe that he came and became a man and lived righteously before the Father on earth. And he took all of our sin and shame upon himself, was struck down by the Father on your behalf. You should have been struck down, but he was. All the wrath of God poured out on him. And yet he rose again on the third day, ascended to heaven that we might have eternal life, all who believe in him. What an amazing truth that through that we can be called children of God and we are. And so abide in him and live in righteousness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, oh, what amazing truth and what, what amazing motivation you have given us as a gift in your word. Lord, that 
if we abide in you, we can know that we have eternal life. That if we abide in you until the end, we can have great joy. We can have confidence and assurance when, you, when Christ comes back to judge because, Lord, we know that you love us and that you sent your son to die for us and that he lived for us, he died for us, and even now he is interceding for us. God, help your children. Help your children to be sensitive to your word and to live it out. May we all be doers of righteousness and represent your name well on this earth. Lord, thank you for this morning and thank you for your word. Help us in the name of your son. Amen.